East Coast people might say Shake Shack. <laughs> Haters. Uh, and then the Californians, the West Coasters will say In and Out. There will be some of, uh, some of you uh, uh, DMV folks, right? DC, Maryland, and Virginia folks who will say, I guess not, five guys. <laughs> That's, what's amazing, now that I've completely lost you, um, what's amazing is that none of, none of these uh, restaurants, none of these companies have paid you to endorse their burger, yet some of you are really vocal about it. And uh, for me, to be honest, I, like, I, I, none of them are my favorite. Um, so some of you will have to win me over. Um, but it, yeah, it's amazing how you're not getting paid, but you've experienced it, you love it, you believe in it to the point where you'll be a spokesperson for it, you'll push it. And um, when we think about how that relates to our faith, you know, we are in this series of our new mission and vision statements at Cornerstone. It's what we want to live out, what we want to believe in, pursue, and see happen in the foreseeable future. Um, the mission will stay long-term, while the vision is what we are looking for the next couple of years. And we're in this, the segment of the vision statement that says, inviting others to encounter the love of Jesus. We want to be a church without walls that invites others to encounter the love of Jesus. And this is something not just for the pastors or for the leadership team. It's, it's meant to be our collective dream for Cornerstone's participation in God's kingdom work. And this statement, even though the word isn't there, it's focused on our evangelism to those who do not yet believe in Jesus. So our passage today is uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. 1 Peter Chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. And if you don't have your Bible with you, we'll have the scripture on the screen. Um, and again, if, if uh, you, you could just silence your phones, not be on social media, not text, that would be great. I believe that God has prepared this Sunday for all of us. 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I'm going to read that one more time. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray before we continue. Lord, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you that your word tells us that your word will not return to you void. So we pray that our hearts would be fertile soil, that it would be your word that speaks loud and clear, and all the tertiary things would just fall to the wayside. We want you to be glorified. We want the name of Jesus to be lifted as high as possible today. We want your praises to, to ring clear and true amongst us. And for those who do not yet follow Jesus and claim him as Lord and Savior, we pray that, God, you would reveal yourself in your perfect way. In your sometimes gentle and sometimes forceful way. In your intricate, masterful way that you would be gracious to each and every one of us. And for for those who are weary physically, emotionally, even spiritually, we ask that this would be a time of renewal, a time of recharging, and an opportunity to regroup as we go out like troops to war. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I believe uh, this passage, these two short verses, show us two keys to effective evangelism. Again, the word's not there, but I believe the, the concept, the, the idea, the principle is there. Two keys to effective evangelism. There are two things we must remember to, in order to evangelize effectively. The first is that we must remember our identity. We must remember our identity. So this letter is written by the Apostle Peter that Phil talked about. The, the stupid guy who got out of the boat. The Apostle Peter is writing to a bunch of believers who are actually scattered uh, in Asia Minor, which is uh, what we now know as Turkey. These believers, these Gentiles, they're, they're not Jew by ethnicity, but these believers have been scattered in that region because uh, Emperor Nero of the Roman Empire was persecuting Christians. So they were facing suffering and and persecution. And Peter is writing to these folks, these people who are trying to follow Jesus in the midst of persecution and suffering. And to these believers, Apostle Peter writes in verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And I wanted to visually present it in this way, this, the verse, with each of those designations and titles. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. To have these titles applied to them as Gentile believers, it would have been shocking. It would have been borderline scandalous because these titles were attributed to the people and nation of Israel. If you have your physical Bible with you, you'll have cross-references in these verses to passages in Deuteronomy and Exodus. And it's God calling Israel, his people, these terms. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Israel was known as God's chosen race, God's chosen ethnic ethnic group. To be Jewish by ethnicity 
was a privilege. Because God, out of, above all the other ethnic groups, chose the Hebrew people as his own. And after saving these Hebrew people from Egypt, God makes a covenant, not with any other people, but the people of Israel. And he tells them that they would collectively be a royal priesthood. In the ancient world, kings would appoint their own priests to worship them. In the ancient world, kings like Pharaoh would appoint priests to to serve them, to, to arrange worship for them. So for God to say, Israel, you are my royal priesthood. You are of, of um, high status, a privileged role in my kingdom. Not only that, you're going to serve me. You're going to help others worship me. At God, as God's holy nation, Israel's purpose was to be set apart and look very different from the other nations during that time. They were supposed to live to a different standard than the other nations. And lastly, as God's own possession, that word possession actually connotes treasure, preciousness. The people of Israel were were his precious and treasured people. God would protect them and sustain them and preserve them. So for Peter to call these Gentile believers these terms, it would have been like, whoa, whoa, I think you're jumping the gun here, Peter. These titles aren't for us. But Peter believes it with all of his heart. It's a huge deal because he, Peter sees how Jesus changes everything. Because of Jesus, a new identity is given to these Gentile believers. They're no longer outsiders because they're not Jewish. They're no longer priests without a temple because they weren't in Jerusalem. These Gentile believers had no concrete way of being affiliated with Israel, yet Peter says, you're a holy nation. And these believers would have had a hard time believing that they were precious in God's sight because of the persecution that they were facing. But this is the new identity that he gives to us, and I'm guessing most of us are Gentiles. I don't know how many of us are ethnic Jews, but we get to have these terms applied to us too. You are a chosen race. It doesn't matter what skin color you are, what country you're from. You're a royal priesthood of kingly status. And Peter makes these things even clearer in verse 10. Once you were not a people, but Now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you received mercy. This verse uh, alludes to the prophet Hosea. And if you, you know, read that story, it's a little crazy. Because God, to portray the broken relationship between Israel and himself, tells a prophet, Hosea, to marry a prostitute named Gomer. And they have children and the, the second and third children have very weird names. The second child is named No Mercy. That's the name of, I think, their daughter. Name your kid No Mercy. The third child 
is not my people. God is upset at the broken relationship between Israel and himself, and he says, Hosea, portray it, represent it in this way. And Israel had broken the promises to God that they were supposed to fulfill. And God would send Israel into exile as a consequence, but out of his own volition, not because of anything that that Israel had done or could do, he promises a future day of Israel's restoration, which is where I believe Peter gets verse 10 from. A future day of Israel's restoration. This is God speaking. He says, I will have mercy on no mercy. And the the people that, you know, not my people will be my people. God promises it in grace. So as much as verse 9 would have been shocking to the Gentile believers, this is even more shocking because these Gentile believers had no claim on the, the covenant between Israel and God. So when Peter uses the language from Hosea, it is as if he's trying to communicate that separation from God and ignorance to God is spiritually equivalent to actively breaking the covenant. And sometimes we forget that part of our past. We want to move on from, yeah, we used to be sinful, right? We struggled with sinfulness, and now we hope we don't. But that's an integral part of our identity, where we come from, who we were, because who we are today changes everything. And just as Israel was restored back to God, these Gentile believers enter into covenant relationship with God through Jesus. And what Peter says in verse 10 is that once you were not a people, but you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but you have received mercy. Through Jesus, these believers are full-fledged children of God, citizens of the kingdom Through Jesus, we are part of heavenly royalty. And because of Jesus, we have access to one true God, the one and only king of the universe. That's our identity. Who God says we are. Where God brought us from. A few weeks ago, um, I had the privilege of going to the Boston Celtics preseason scrimmage party. Um, It's a preseason thing, so it's within the team, two squads, white and green. Uh, And this event was for only season holders, season season ticket holders only. So it was a much smaller crowd than a typical game. And uh, it was was crazy because my my friend, um, Simon, he had access to tickets, free tickets. He had two and he, he, he texted me uh, and offered, offered it to me for free. So I got to enjoy it, and uh, I got to see uh, Brian Scalabrini. Um, the, the excitement in the room, if you don't know, is that uh, Brian Scalabrini is probably the, the most famous bench player in the history of, of basketball. Uh, Kobe is known as the Black Mamba, but Brian Scalabrini is known as the White Mamba. And I was that close. I, I was not thinking he was even going to hear me, but he was passing by. 
And mind you, I'm not even a Celtics fan. I was like, show me some love. <laughs> and he came over and took this picture with us. I was right behind the scorekeeper's bench, the, the table. And this is how close I was to Brad Stevens, the coach of the Boston Celtics. And then not only that, after the scrimmage was over, I had access to the court. Um, you see the security guard trying to chase me away? Like, he is not happy that I'm there. But I'm standing on the court that is for the athletes. Because my friend Simon had free tickets, and he gave it to me freely, I was able to get access. I, I saw um, the athletes, coaches, TV commentators, and even executives. Uh, I saw Danny Ainge next to me um, for the Boston Celtics. And to be honest, and I'm, not trying to be, I'm not trying to be humble because um, the Celtics aren't my team. But the whole time, I thought about other people who would have enjoyed it much more than me. Um, I was actually texting Pastor Danny the whole time, and um, <laughs> he probably thought I was trying to rub it in, but I was actually trying to like, uh, share the experience with him. And if he hated me, then I hope he forgives me. Um, and I think in a small way, this is what happens when we remember our identity. If we don't remember our identity, we just think about the benefits we get as believers and followers of Jesus. We think about the special access, the salvation, the, the intimacy that we get to experience. But when we remember our identity, who we were before and who we are now, we know that there's nothing special about us that makes us any different than any other person who doesn't believe in Jesus yet. And we want to share it with others. We were all estranged from God at one point. Before Jesus saved us, we were no different than any person walking on the street right now, sitting on the tee next to you during the week, sitting in your classrooms, working in the cube next to you, living in the house next to you. And we were just as lost, just as sinful, just as separated and broken as any other person in the world, yet he rescued us. He calls us a part of his chosen race, a royal priesthood, holy nation, and people for his possession. When we remember our identity, our evangelism is marked by humility and compassion. We don't think of ourselves better than anybody else. We see others as valuable in the sight of God. That they too are imago Dei, they are the image of God. We know that Jesus died on the cross for them too. For our evangelism to be effective, we must remember our identity. Second, we must remember our purpose. For our evangelism to be effective, we have to remember our purpose. Verse 9 again, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. You are all of these things, this new identity, so that in order that you can proclaim the excellencies of God, who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. These special titles are now put on to these Gentile believers so that they can proclaim 
God's excellencies. The verb proclaim, it means, it's very simple, to make known, to declare, and, and to announce. It's actually a compound verb. It's redundant. It's announce out, as if you could announce in. You declare it publicly. And the word excellency there, there's two possible definitions. First is an uncommon characteristic worthy of praise, an uncommon characteristic worthy of praise, or a manifestation of divine power. You are all these benefits in, in Jesus. You are this new identity in God so that you can announce and declare how uncommonly praiseworthy God is and to make known when he shows up in power. These Gentile believers, their new identity wasn't intended for personal benefit only. They were to make it known to the nations. They were to make it known how worthy of praise God is, how powerful and sovereign he is. So our purpose in life is actually to worship God and to elicit and increase worship of God in others. That's what evangelism is. We think about evangelism as unfortunately narrow, unfortunately narrow as sharing the four spiritual laws. We think about sharing certain verses in in, in the Bible. We think about them praying the sinner's prayer. No, no, no. The goal of evangelism is that Others would worship God. Worship how God has called us out of darkness and into marvelous light, brilliant light. Uh, In Chicago, there's a building. um, It's simply known as 333 West Wacker Drive, and it's right in the heart of Chicago. And this building was designed with the sole purpose of reflecting the city. Reflecting the city. The face of the building, you can see, is curved. And it actually mimics the the curvature of the Chicago River right in front of it. The glass there is tinted slightly green because for whatever reason, the Chicago River water is slightly green. (laughs) And this building is covered in very highly reflective windows to shine back the beauty that is already Chicago. I know you Chicago people are like, Amen! Yeah! (laughs) This building has a purpose, and it's not to stand out. It's to reflect what's already wonderful, what's already marvelous. We have been graciously saved by God, a new identity, so that we would make God known more. Sometimes we think about evangelism as, what do I have to do? What do I have to know? How do I need to say it? When's the right opportunity? But if we're ready and willing and just giving ourselves up to the Spirit like our brother Phil did, right? Feeling the prompting of the Spirit and just really going for it in faith, I think that's what evangelism is. God has already done the hard work of evangelism. Our God is objectively praiseworthy. Amen? He's already praiseworthy. You don't have to do much work there. You just go, 
yo, he's, he's awesome. <laughs> That's all you have to do. He's objectively mightier and sovereign, more sovereign than we could ever imagine. You just have to reflect it to others. John Teeter, the, the church planting leader of our denomination, uh, he actually served as the evangelism leader of our denomination. He writes in his book, uh, Get the Word Out, God is looking for people who are madly in love with his son, who experience him as the best joy in all the world and therefore cannot contain their joy in God. Worship is the goal of evangel- evangelism. It's the purpose of our lives, starting with my own worship and extending to the worship of others. We must remember our identity and our purpose as we try to evangelize. The danger is that when we forget our identity and when we forget our purpose, we start to believe that there's something special about us. We start to feel entitled as followers of Jesus. And when God doesn't give us the benefits that we think we deserve, we lose sight of God's mercy. We forget that we're his chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, and people of his own possession. When we forget our purpose to worship and to extend worship, then we focus on personal comfort, just like we heard in the testimony. We think about self-preservation, our reputation, at the cost of worship of God. Our personal worship suffers, and the world's worship of God suffers. But when we ground ourselves again in our proper identity, God-given identity, God-given purpose, that's when I think we'll have power in our, in our uh, witness, in our evangelism. You know, the strategic planning team who worked on this uh, mission and vision statement, they used these words, invite others to encounter, encounter the love of Jesus. And I want to push us all to apply it in a couple of ways. In order to invite, I want to make us realize that we're all hosts. We don't come, we cannot, we cannot. We cannot come in here expecting to merely receive. Yeah, we will receive, but that's a consequence of how, how merciful and, and lavish God is. But we are hosts to Sunday services, to community group gatherings, to fellowship events. And the welcoming core team actually has been reading a book and the, within the first two chapters, we were already challenged because the author writes that we need to see every person who walks through the doors of our church as a soul gifted by God in need of his love. Shameless plug. Uh, we're relaunching the ministry. Told everyone to take a break. We do need volunteers. Think about it. Others. Invite others. Uh, Some of us uh, do not engage intentionally with people who do not believe in Jesus. Sometimes we spend 100% of our time with Cornerstone folks. We, We love that you love each other. That's great. But we have worship to increase. Let's find intentional ways to interact with non Christians and encounter the love of Jesus. We didn't say invite people to church. 
He said, invite people to encounter the love of Jesus. That means when you walk in here, you, you lift up a quick prayer. Be with the praise team that they would help us encounter the love of Jesus. When you walk into your small group, pray for your uh, Bible study leader and say, God, help that person, that brother, that sister, lead us to encounter the love of Jesus. Are you all ready for opportunities to help others encounter the love of Jesus? In 1 Peter 3.15, he writes, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Are you able to express why you have hope in this life? If you're here and you don't, you don't believe in Jesus yet, you have full permission to start asking anybody and everybody, hey, why do you believe in Jesus? And I hope you start to hear stories of how amazing God is, the excellencies of God. To close, uh, I, I want to share uh, one story. For whatever reason, I'm in Chicago in my mind today. Um, Edward Kimball. He's a shoe store assistant, shoe store assistant, who served as a Sunday school teacher in Chicago, and he spent his free times actually going to the inner city looking for children, just children on the street, and trying to evangelize to them. Through Kimball, Edward Kimball, a young boy named D.L. Moody got saved, and D.L. Moody became a preacher. Uh, Moody then became a preacher too. And he evangelized to another person named F.B. Meyer. F.B. Meyer became a preacher also and evangelized to J.W. Chapman. And J.W. Chapman somehow became a preacher again. (laughs) Not again, but he also became a preacher. And he got access to baseball players of his time. And he evangelized to uh, an athlete named Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday went to a revival in Charlotte, North Carolina, that another evangelist was invited. So he, he didn't get saved by uh, Billy Sunday, but he was invited to Charlotte to preach. Uh, the, his name was Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham preached at this revival and a teenager named Billy Graham gave his life to Jesus. And it all started with a shoe store assistant. All of us are products. If we believe in Jesus, we are products of somebody else's step of faith of evangelizing to somebody in our life, and the chain reaction started. Can we too start to believe that we can cause a chain reaction? We don't have to see the results right away. We may not be meant to see the fruit right away, but could we, would we, enter into creating more worship in this world of God? On a personal level, I grew up a really, really shy, shy boy. Uh, I was so shy. I moved towns in New York City, went to a new school. I was so shy. My teacher was asking me a simple question, and nothing came out of my mouth. Uh, This is half funny story, half sad story. She put me in English as second language uh, because I was so shy. I'm not, like, I was that shy. I was born and raised in the States. I learned how to read before I went to kindergarten. 
But when the teacher asked me a simple question, I couldn't respond. That's how shy I was. And every time I come up here to speak to you all, it's it really, like, I take it as a miracle. In college, I, I studied a major that didn't require me to take speech communications because I didn't want to public speak. God is funny like that. <laughs> Second Corinthians 3, verse 4 to 6. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who made us competent. The scripture says that you're competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Our evangelism rooted in our identity, God-given identity, God-given purpose can be effective in this world because of who God is and what he has done. Our sufficiency is Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you, and first we ask that we would never, ever treat our own testimony anything but a miracle. You saved us, and you gave us a new identity. We are children of the living God. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are declared righteous in your eyes. And we thank you for that. And we also thank you that you give us a greater purpose in this life, not just for our personal happiness, salvation, and comfort. It's to make you known. And all we have to do is reflect back who you are, what you've done. So God, give us boldness. Give us security. We know that this world does not take you well, does not receive you well. Help us to know that all we need to do is be faithfully proclaiming the excellencies of God. We don't have to take it personally. In fact, your scriptures say if you're persecuted, if we're persecuted for your sake, that we would be blessed. So God, strengthen my sisters and brothers here in whatever meaningful way, intentional way, they would start to take steps in boldly proclaiming how uncommonly worthy of praise you are and how you just show up with divine, sovereign power in this world, in our lives. So we trust you. We ask that you would take all the glory even today as we continue in song, that as we worship today, that we will go out, even in terms of the Boston uh, Beantown Autumn Festival, give us opportunities to, to share why we're doing this event. Because we love Jesus, and Jesus loves you. We thank you so much for this time to be under your word, and we pray again that your word would have come clear and true, that you would take all the honor, the praise, and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's rise together.